This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. I'm Jean Ferrante. I'm on the steering committee, and I'm from UC San Diego. Um, and we're moving now into our discipline-specific examination of the topic today. And um, here we are, have asked the, the uh, panelists to address um, issues specific to uh, research in the discipline, uh, data that could be local to the discipline, and also experiences with successful practices. So uh, thank you all for, for coming. I'd like to just introduce uh, both of our speakers, and then uh, the way this is going to work is they'll each have uh, approximately 15 minutes, and uh, then we'll have a 15-minute time for discussion and questions and answers and interaction. And um, we do have to report back to the full session, so um, I want to leave at least five minutes at the end so that um, we can maybe summarize with you what you think the important points are that we can then bring back to the next session. So uh, I'm pleased to first introduce um, Dean Gregory Washington, who joined uh, UC Irvine as uh, Dean of Engineering in uh, not too long ago, 2011. And um, he works in the area of dynamical systems and uh, in mechanical engineering. And uh, I think mechanical engineering is right at the center of engineering, so that's a, it's great to have that viewpoint. Um, and Carol Seren is a professor, chair and professor of criminology, law, and society, and sociology and law. That's a long one. She's also um, uh, been faculty equity advisor in the School of Social uh, Ecology for quite some time. Most of her work has been in the social science area, and. Uh, the reason she's on the panel today for uh, engineering and computer science is that she's been part of a study that uh, has gathered data uh, over uh, the course of um, undergraduate lifetime and beyond now uh, at four very different uh, universities and studying students' persistence in engineering. And so I think she'll have some interesting things to say there, too. So. Uh, who would like to go first? I think Greg. Greg? Makes sense for Greg to go. I think that, yeah. All right. Thanks, Greg. How are you guys doing today? All right. I only have 15 minutes, and if those of you who know me know that that's very difficult. So I'm going to push through a lot of this very, very quickly, and then anything that I miss, please uh, feel free to ask questions in the 
question and answer session. And, you know, I always like to begin with what's the reason for the season? Why do this? Why STEM? Why is it important? Uh, And it really stems from three major factors. The first being that we have a huge population in the globe today. We're somewhere over the neighborhood of about uh, 7 billion people. We know that over the next 10 years, an additional billion people will be added to the roles of the human race. And how do we know that? Because we're making every one of those additional billion people as we speak. And, and so we know that they're coming. And uh, if we were to give every one of those 1 billion people one light bulb, one 40-watt light bulb, and told them they can only burn it for four hours a day, it would take the equivalent of a 500-megawatt power plant built every month for a period of two years just to meet that demand. And if these billion are anything like my kids, they're going to need a whole heck of a lot more than four hours to burn the lights. How many in here are from California? I assume that's everybody. Is that, is that right? And undoubtedly, many of you traveled here today from other places, and you came across bridges and overpasses. Well, in the state of California alone, we know that about one out of every three, about 30% of the bridges and overpasses in the state of California are what we call structurally deficient, meaning that they're, they can't carry the loads that they were designed to carry. And of those bridges, we know that another third are structurally indeterminate. That means with all of the technology we have today, we can't determine the loads that they actually can carry. The full repair of the infrastructure in this country is going to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of about $2.2 trillion. We, first of all, we're broke. We don't have the money. But let's suppose we did. There is not enough concrete for us to re- reinvigorate, redo our infrastructure at the same time that China and India are actually building theirs. So the population driver is an issue. The second one is that we all exist in what are called global market economies, meaning that after the year 2000, six billion people entered into the global marketplace and decided that they were all going to compete. And we are all competing. 85% of a country's gross domestic product, its GDP, is attached directly to science and technology. And in this country, engineers and scientists only make up about 4% of the workforce. Finally, we've gone through what is called a telecommunications and aviation revolution. And what that means for all of us in here today is that distance is dead. Just as easy as I'm sitting in here talking to you today, I could be talking to my colleagues in China. I got a group here today uh, from Israel. Uh, They came here and, and we are working on a joint conference in communications of all things. That whole conference was planned by Skype. We met twice a week, in the mornings for us and the evenings for them, and we planned a whole conference. And we were, I was able to see them and talk. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that we can communicate very readily and easily. And the competition now is no longer with UCLA, or my friend here from Berkeley, It's no longer between UCLA and UC Berkeley or 
uh, or any Cal State or USC or Caltech. You're competing against the globe. And we're competing against the globe for who's going to dominate the future of the world. Those are the real issues. So I say all of this to say that we also have great opportunities in this. So there's some challenges, but there's some huge opportunities. In April 2003, the human genome was sequenced. We know that uh, later next year, humans, uh, computers would eclipse humans in computational capacity. Computers already, this is the desktop. Supercomputers already beat us regularly. Ask Ken Jennings. <laughs> when, when he, you know, when he had the Jeopardy competition between the IBM computer Watson and Ken Jennings, it wasn't even close. Uh, humans lost. Communications bandwidth has increased 100,000 times since 2000. And so we have all of these great opportunities that happen in front of us, and they're STEM-related. Up here in your upper right corner, you see a picture of a woman that we call Emily. Uh, the great thing about Emily is that there's nothing about Emily that's real. She's totally computer-generated. And so what I tell my students who enter in as freshmen right now, that by the time they graduate, by the time they leave the university, they will see the first movies in which none of the characters are real, and they will not be able to tell the difference. And so I was talking to some actors about this, and they said, well, the problem with this is that they're not real. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're not real. <laughs> and, but Emily won't just be on your computer screen. Emily will be on your phone. Emily will be on your computer. And Emily will be able to have the full range of communications that, with you that we as humans have with each other. We have great competition now. This is Singapore in 1960. This is a picture from the same vantage point today. 1960, today. It's like that eggs commercial, right? Where the guy's talking about this is your brain on drugs, you know. Get the picture? You get the picture? We are in a competitive race, and the, comp the competition is STEM-based. If you don't believe it, this plot right here will highlight this very, very clearly. We live in Irvine, and I, and I just came here. This is my first year in Irvine. One of the things I noticed is that Irvine is the ultimate planned community. There is nothing, not a single thing out of place in Irvine. Nothing. If it's a tree, somewhere it's supposed to be there. If there's a rock, it's supposed to be there. <laughs> well, so I, I tell my kids all the time, they, you know, we're playing, they drop their sandwich on the ground, you're in Irvine, you can pick it up and eat it, no problem. <laughs> you're not going to get sick. <laughs> but just like we, just like Irvine is a planned community, in some of our competitors, namely China, it's planned life. Our competition is literally planning to beat us. You see what happened there around 2002? There was a market jump in the number of science and engineering degrees. And that pace, you know, look, it's very interesting. You look at the data, and it almost follows a straight line. No data follows a straight line, unless it's planned to follow a straight line. It's just... It's just a straight 45-degree angle. This is planned, and, and, that's what, and that's what we're up against. And so 
why am I taking time to talk about this? Well, I'm taking time to talk about this because of this issue. You see, women represent 51% of our population. You can't have this battle. You can't have it without women. It's, it's not, to me, it's, it's, it's not something that we can even debate. You just, we will lose. It, it, it'll just be so many more of them than it is of us. Oh, in China, they don't care if the, if the scientists are men. They just give you a test. You look at <laughs> those who do really well on a test, you're an engineer. You don't do really well on a test, well, you, you, we put you in something else. And it doesn't matter if it's men or women. You, you, you see what I'm saying here? And so women make up 51% of the population but less than 30% of the PhD degrees. African-American, Chicano, uh, Latino Americans uh, make up 24% of the population, but less than 8% of the PhD graduates. And, and we continue to lose the market share. That was the plot before in this, in this area. Now, all of that being said, 80% of our, 85% of our growth is attributed to this very group of people. The broader metrics have nothing to do with the metrics in STEM, and especially the metrics in engineering. So if I look, this is everyone. At every degree level, from associates all the way through doctoral degrees, if I look at the class of 2010, females outnumber males significantly, as they should. They're a larger percentage of the population. So this is what's happening in the broader community. This is not what's happening in STEM. And STEM is an added is a necessary component of our survival. Okay, so, so, so that's the framing of the problem. Where does it stem from? Well, part of it is our own doing. You know, we've con con condensed what we do to some formulas and incantations on a page, and it has to go broader than that. And I'll talk a little bit about solutions as we go forward, but of every 100 ninth graders, only six of them become a STEM grad on the back end. Only six. And that's all STEM. That's all science. That's all of it. That's engineering. That's mathematics. That's everyone. So the numbers in engineering are much, are much less than that. One way to improve this is that we have to change the way in which we teach and the way in which we, in which we engage students. We have very smart students who are smart in math, who are smart in science, and they're choosing not to be in this field. We have to change that, and the way we do that is that we have to bring design. We have to bring the creativity piece back into STEM. I'll talk a little bit about that in the question and answer series. We call this concept STEAM. Science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. The arts is for design. If we look at the number of bachelor degrees awarded, we see that this is where, really where the problem starts. So 22% of all BS degrees in engineering, this is all engineering data now, 22% of them go to women of all races, okay? Here is one piece of evidence that shows us what we can do going forward. This is all of the engineering disciplines. And if we look at it by percent of graduates, we see that some do a lot better than others. So if you're, if you're an environmental engineer, four out of every 10 are women. 
If you are a biomedical engineer, about four out of every 10 are women. So there are some areas that are getting it right. Unfortunately, there's some areas that are getting it woefully wrong. If you're a computer engineer, it's 9%. It's one out of every 10. So these are the kinds of areas that we need to focus on as we move forward. I can go from bachelor's to master's. And you see, as the master's degree, something interesting happens. Remember, it was 22% of BS degrees. But as you get higher in degrees, 27% of MS degrees, master's degrees go to women. The number actually goes up. And actually, the, the interesting thing about this trend is that it also continues at the PhD level. At the PhD level, 30% actually go to women, right? So what does that tell me? We gotta get, if we get more women into grad school, we're gonna increase the numbers of, of PhDs overall. And guess what? Those numbers of PhDs overall at the graduate level will actually impact and increase the numbers of, of, of students getting bachelor's degrees because that's where, we, that's where, the, leaky, that's where the faucet is the leakiest. And that's basically what I said here. So what must we do to improve? I got this one and one last slide and I'm done. I don't think this is an, an impossible problem to solve. In my last position at Ohio State, uh, my first cohort of hires in the first year, we hired about half of our faculty who were hired were women. Uh, in the second year, uh, eight out of 11 were women or, or underrepresented minority. And so we have to convince faculty that we actually need to increase in these areas because of these numbers. And why is it important? Because the stakes are really, really very, very high. It starts at the recruitment at the graduate level. I won't go through all this information, but here's some of what our actual data here is at, at UCI. And, and so this is something we have a diversity advisory board. We have a number of uh, faculty groups that are intent on focusing and changing these numbers. Now you can see we're doing pretty good in a number of areas, <laughs> but there are a couple of areas in which we're, we, we still continue to struggle. And so this is where we are, and that's it. I came to this question about the underrepresentation of women and minorities in engineering through earlier research I had done on women in law and the dramatic transformation that has occurred over my lifetime as a scholar. And in about 2000, um, with colleagues, I asked the question, what makes engineering so different that we don't see these changes in engineering that we've really seen across the board in the professions over the latter part of the 20th century? That's kind of the broad, that's the way I came into this. Um, so hopefully that kind of seals the, the connection between the research I'm doing now and the way Jean introduced me. And specifically today, I'd like to talk about one of the goals for the conference, which is really to try and unpack this notion of accountability for equity and diversity at the departmental level and what it means to advance in a degree um, and what the educational experience of students looks like in order to ensure degree completion. So whereas Greg's talk was a very macro approach, mine, as we'll see, is a pretty micro look at four schools, actually. I've done this re research with uh, collaborators uh, at various institutions, and we've been looking at four sites, um, MIT, Olin College of Engineering, Smith, which has the first women-only program in engineering, 
and UMass. Those were the four schools that we uh, selected. You can imagine I was on the East Coast when I began this project. And the research question we ask is what explains the differential patterns of persistence between men and women and engineering? And what we mean by persistence takes two forms. One is the likelihood of completing the degree and entering the labor market. And the other dimension of this is intentional persistence. That is the plan to stay the course five years hence. Obviously, you can get a degree, and you have a very marketable degree in engineering, lots of other career options. So what creates both this commitment to intentional and um, behavioral persistence? Um, we collected a lot of data. I'm only going to focus on a very small amount. Of it. We followed, this is a panel study. We followed these students from the day they entered college through the 18 months post-graduation, and we're now in the process of going back and surveying them again when they'll be about five years out. We did interviews with them in the first year and the fourth year, and then a smaller sample wrote diaries for us about their experiences. And those were kind of unstructured, completely unstructured. Because this is such a conundrum, we wanted to hear from them uh, in their own words, unprompted by interviewers. So in my remarks today, um, I'm going to present some of our general findings and then turn to those in-depth interviews that we have with minority women uh, who, in fact, stayed the course, as I'll come back to in a few minutes, and then try and talk about some of the broader implications of these findings for understanding, understanding challenges facing women, minority women in STEM fields as they transition into graduate and uh, professoriate levels. My comments today are um, also rooted in some of the work that Ong and her colleagues summarized in the article that I hope you've all read, and if not, I urge you to do so. And basically, the, the literature shows that among women, there's this issue of confidence um, that is critical for women's success. And in other work that Ong does, she also points to the importance of unpacking um, the unintended consequences of collaboration, a point that Greg alluded to and that I'll come back to in my comments uh, in a few minutes. But what I'd like to do today, essentially, is to develop a more nuanced understanding of self-confidence. Um, and I hope that my remarks today contribute to that discussion. As a sociologist, what we study is a field called professional socialization. And a large body of research going back 50, 60 years has shown that professional, the goal of professional socialization is not just to pass on expertise, but also to pass on a vision of being able to see yourself in the role of what it means to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And so two ways that we might think about this is, is that professionals, the goal of professional socialization is to impart a sense of confidence in your expertise, that is that you're comfortable with the knowledge, the skills, the technical aspects of a particular field, as well as what, me and, what my colleagues and I call career fit confidence. That is that you have a confidence that you, that you can envision yourself in a particular professional role, that this role suits who you are as an individual, that it comports with your values, your identity, your sense of self in the world. And as I'll show in a few minutes, 
understanding, and Greg actually alluded to this in, in his comments, understanding uh, women and minority women in particular persistence in uh, engineering and other STEM fields is not a matter of just focusing on expertise. That's not the challenge. The challenge is actually around this issue of career fit. What our findings show from research, and this is our overall findings, not focusing on um, uh, women of color or men of color, but what our overall findings show is that career professional role confidence is indeed a significant predictor of men's and women's persistence in engineering pipeline. But that universities, college, professional socialization does a much inferior job to passing on career fit confidence to women compared to men. And that that is a significant predictor for their likelihood of leaving the, the professional career track of engineering, regardless of whether or not they actually, in fact, earned a degree in engineering. So what our, I'm, I've simplified this in comparison to the research itself just to try and get this point out. But essentially what our findings show is, is that both expertise and career fit are significant, that career fit confidence is more significant in an explanatory model of intentional persistence. That is the plan to stay the course. And our findings begin to point towards how we might break this down and understand it specifically for minorities, though like everybody else in this field, our sample sizes are extraordinarily small. But basically what our findings show here is that um, when we look at the full model, Hispanic and Asian American students, the effect of this professional role confidence is significantly stronger than it is for their non-URM counterparts, suggesting that expertise confidence may be particularly important for Hispanic and Asian Americans, particularly for Asian Hispanic students who grapple with various stereotypes, a point that I'll come to in a minute. So one implication of these findings is that the cultivation of professional role confidence is important for all students, but it's particularly important for minority students or students of color. So what I'd like to do in my um, remaining time here is what I did is I went back to the interviews that I mentioned where we interviewed, this is just the students where we got them in the first year and then we could re-interview them in the fourth year. We have more, but I just wanted to focus on what they were like in the first year and what they were like in the fourth year. Now, interesting, there's only, and there's nine out of 64, um, all of them actually graduated with either an engineer or a STEM degree. None of them left the engineering pipeline altogether, and that's actually consistent with our findings in general. That is, is when men leave engineering, they're significantly more likely to go to the humanities and the social sciences. When women leave engineering, they're more likely to stay in a scientific discipline. And the pattern for these women, this subgroup, is exactly the same as our larger sample. So what I did is I went back and I uh, read these interviews and I tried to extract the themes that emerge that explains why these women persisted. Now this is a very small sample. Um, social scientists are always nervous about small samples. But in a situation like this, this is what we have to go on. 
And I thought it was particularly interesting and important because we have them at two points in time. So what do these interviews tell us? The first thing is, is that all of them, and this is true across the board, they attended math camps. They were engaged in summer programs in high school. And these experiences made an enormous difference. It allowed them to be that nerdy girl that uh, Amy Dore uh, described earlier and enjoy. One of the women in African-American reports that she was a science Olympian in high school and that it gave her an, immense, an enormous amount of comfort to pursue uh, her degree in engineering at Olin. Another dimension that repeatedly emerges from these interviews is that these women of color are attracted to a career in a STEM field because they see it as part and parcel of their social responsibility to a broader community. This emerges in the first year and it stays with them through the fourth year. So, and, and for any of you, any of you who have studied engineering culture, uh, this is given lip service at best in engineering. Um, I don't have time, I have a quote here, but I, unfortunately I, they're flashing cards, so I'm gonna move through these, um, which is unfortunate. Another dimension that we don't talk about very much that emerges from this is social class matters. A number of these women um, have mothers who are doctors. They watched their mother uh, be a doctor. They decided they weren't interested in doctor, being a doctor and decided to study biological engineering, uh, kind of reflecting some of the slides that Greg showed earlier. Another woman who uh, graduated in applied mathematics at MIT had a father who was an engineer and um, didn't, in, didn't found her father's work boring um, and so made a career exit from engineering. So class makes a very important difference. And one way to sum this up is, is that women who come from backgrounds where parents are professionals uh, have the opportunity to be both more grounded in their experiences as well as, very interestingly, I think, empathetic. And empathetic to that white guy who is threatened by affirmative action. I have wonderful quotes here, but I'm a, okay. Another dimension that appears in, in their strategies of uh, persistence is that they play with stereotypes. They recognize that they can dress, and as one girl says, young woman says, in a hard-assed way or really feminine. They can play with it. Another Asian woman, woman, Asian American woman, describes how she can ask a guy for help uh, on homework problems. But they're very situationally specific. She would never ask for help in a lab because the next thing she knows, she would be described as a dumb girl. So they, stereotypes is an important dimension and how they cope with them. And then there is this, mess, this, this experience of teamwork. And I hope that we have some time to talk more about it because this is often seen as the panacea. Girls are better at working collaboratively than men, but when these young women get into these teams, and it's interesting, not their teachers, it's their peers, their male peers, that they find that they're, they're relegated to secretarial roles or managerial roles and they don't like it. And I would suggest our findings suggest that that carries out into internships and workplaces 
and often seals the deal on exit. They cultivate support networks, play on varsity teams, they join African-American sororities, they create Chinese-American clubs of various kinds, they get support from their families. So support networks are important. And then there's this dimension of resilience. Among the nine women, one, a student at MIT, who's East Asian, of Pakistani origin, craters in her first year. She failed um, math, uh, chemistry and physics, and she failed physics again. In her first year, she's very high on MIT. By her last year, she really, really hates the place. She regrets that she didn't go to Harvard. She has many negative things to say about um, MIT, as you might imagine. Yet, as we interview in her fourth year, she is actually preparing to take the MCATs. So there's a certain kind of resilience that we need to understand as well. Um, she, among them, she was really the one that confronted the most serious um, problems. But what's, stri what's striking and what she illustrates is that she came back. So what I think that these findings, I hope these findings suggest, is, is that these women develop strategies for persisting in engineering, for developing their career fit confidence. And as they move forward, uh, any number of them were planning and had already been admitted to PhD programs when we interviewed them in their fourth year, they will, this notion of professional role confidence will take on one last dimension what we might think of as relational confidence. And what we mean by that is the comfort with dealing with peers, associates, superiors, um, and so forth, as well as the culture, the demeanor of the profession. So I'll leave it at that, and hopefully we can have questions. I'm, I guess I went over. I apologize. <laughs> so do we have any Questions, things people want. Please, uh, can you use the microphones? I have a question for Carol. Yeah. Uh, and this has to do, you gave us all sorts of tantalizing hints about I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. asking you more about some of the pitfalls of collaboration. Uh, oh, sure. Forming collaborative teams is something we're very interested in doing. I'd love to hear what you learned. Well, this, was, this comes out in this work, but one of the th themes that comes out is, and this is because we have these nice longitudinal data, is that they start out, and this again depends on the way the program is and which the, sc the school and so forth, but you know, they start out working with peers in their home institution, and these young women are often relegated to these secretarial roles. While they're in school, a lot of them are very active in SWE, which is you know, Society for Women and Engineers, and they debrief about it and they talk about it. This comes out a lot in the diaries. Then they go and they do these internships, and they have incredibly sexist experiences there. Um, and there, they're more isolated. They don't have their cohort at school, their summer jobs. And, I mean, I could quote some of them to you, but they're pretty, you know, they're pretty horrifying. Um, they don't have much of a political lens. Engineers are not very politically, you know, they don't think of themselves in political terms. In fact, they kind of um, 
glorify apolitical thought, but that's it. And so they kind of reached the point, you know, why bother? These are really smart women who have very good analytical training. And so many of them go off into finance or other areas where they're highly recruited. So my policy recommendation, and I think that actually Greg's slide was alluding to that, is that if you're going to go forward with these collaborations, you need to educate the organizations that you're sending your students to. They are, I mean, what you're starting out thinking is going to be a solution is having this unintended effect in the field of peers, men, making both sexist, mainly it comes out in terms of sexism, um, comments. And it, for many, it accumulates. And they just say, it's these micro-encounters that um, Yolanda mentioned earlier. And so, you know, that's, that's based, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's. Can I ask a question of Dean Washington? I think many of us are curious with some of the data you showed on, on what seemed to be a pipeline that has an anti-leak, that the proportion of women increases. I mean, the, the, is that right for 2011 data? That's so, totally counterintuitive to everything we've been taught over the years that uh, the pipeline is very leaky. Well, so it's, it's very interesting. The data I pulled is from a report called Engineering by the Numbers. And so I would recommend that you guys, it's, it's available online and uh, it's actually produced every year. Uh, and so um, the proportion is higher. Okay, and, and, and so what I didn't show you there is the actual number. Okay, so you have a higher proportion at each level. The overall, the overall numbers are still, are, are, are still relatively low. And uh, it, it, gets, it gets back to a, a broader issue. Um, U.S. students in general, male, women, uh, male, female, white, black, yellow, whatever, are not choosing to go to graduate programs in the levels, in the percentages that they used to choose. And so uh, that, that plot I showed you that showed China basically going off the map, if you notice the U.S. numbers were flat for what looked like easily a 30-year period. Um, what, I, what I don't show you there is over that same 30-year period, the number of eligible graduates went from 11 million to over 19 million. So in a, in a huge bull market over that 30-year period, engineering has been flagged. And so that's why, so, so the percentages are higher, but the numbers are actually uh, still relatively low. Uh, yes. Um, I'd like to emphasize the, the uh, comments, that, a couple of them that have been made about um, women or men or underrepresented minorities feeling alone or lost and without that support, they don't go on. And my, my introduction, if I should say, to diversity was watching aghast at the things that happened to my wife, who was in this, become an assistant professor in the University of California. She's now the chair of UCAN, she's in the other meeting. Uh, and some of what kept her going was my support, 
But what I want to get to is that mentorship is crucially important, I think, in all of this. And I think all of our campuses should have formal mentorship programs. You can't force someone to accept a mentor. Um, but Manuela's been very successful in dealing with women who are having a very hard time. And that's only one-on-one, -on -one, but at least it gives this opportunity of fitting in when you feel you're drowning. The, the isolation is real. And, 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 and as, as it relates to your, member, your mentorship, uh, I, I, I agree, but the mentorship has to be real as well. The isolation is not only real at the undergraduate level, the graduate level, the isolation persists all the way through administration. And so it's not, it's not something that goes away. So even where you all sit now, you have an opportunity to impact. There are those of us who are at multiple stages of in, in, in academic life. The isolation exists at every single stage, at every single one of them. You carry more confidence, but the isolation does not go away. Um, can I just say something about, you know, we always think about mentorship. I mean, when I was equity advisor, I spent a lot of time assigning mentors. So, um, and at the same time that I was doing that, I, there, through, I'm a sociologist, so through the American Sociological Association and one section of the ASA, they had set up a program of mentorship within that specialization where I was the mentor of someone at a different university. And we had a plan where we spoke once a month on the phone. And uh, this person's now a full professor, I'm proud to say, but, but at, a, sorry, at a UC campus who was recruited away from UC. But in any case, um, I think we talk about mentorship as being someone in the department who's close to home, but you know, another place to think about establishing mentoring relationships is through professional associations in the same subfield as that individual that you can talk about issues both related to your research and faculty meetings and so on that the mentee feels more comfortable raising because it's not a set of players they have to interact with. So one area to really think about the development of mentoring is not just on the campuses but through, through professional associations um, of, their, of the various disciplines. Okay, one short question. Okay. Um, Oscar Dubon, uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, my, my question is we place a lot of, uh, there's a description about what the students are feeling, uh, what is affecting their decisions. But in the end, we have, as an institution and as members of an institution, we have to go back and say, we are stakeholders. What can we do? And I think the study at Yale that recently showed that uh, there are, uh, as faculty, we see women and men differently in how we hire a lab manager, for example. Um, it really shows that, as an institution, we have to do something also. And I think what we should focus on is what action items can we take as stakeholders, as part of the institution, to affecting change, rather than just saying, well, this is what, this, this is what people are feeling, these are what students are feeling. We need to really move beyond that and take responsibility. Thank you. Agreed. <laughs> okay, I'd, I'd like to uh, try and maybe summarize, if that's possible, uh, what we have learned today. Um, 
Engineering and computer science are not often thought of, uh, and they certainly don't identify with being, uh, uh, having a social aspect. Uh, uh, you know, we think of ourselves as a problem-solving discipline, but I think it was remarkable the degree to which we talked about the social aspects of being a, a, a computer scientist or engineer and in persisting in, in doing that. And um, I think one of the things we can take back uh, as, um, uh, uh, is also the opportunities for um, changing the world through this discipline. Um, I think that Carol pointed out that um, that's something that's important to women and um, students from underrepresented groups. And it's something I think we're not taking enough advantage of. Uh, we don't have enough of that going on, that kind of positive, collaborative teamwork experience that can keep people in a discipline when, you know, other things don't seem so, so uh, positive. Uh, I think also the idea of introducing other aspects, um, uh, as uh, Greg said, uh, introducing design into the, into the environment. So um, I'm getting dinged now too. So um, let's see. I think um, I would also like to um, summarize a little bit what Carol said about persistence and the importance of um, getting, uh, giving students experiences and having them have enough of a social support structure so that they can persist. Um, and um, strategies for um, giving our students those tools for persistence are, I think, something that we have to think about very, you know, perhaps much more, more deeply than we have. So collaborations, teamwork, uh, social uh, impact are all things that um, we can do in science and engineering. And we, but we need to make those experiences good ones. We need good mentors. We need uh, good um, uh, advisors. Uh, and we need them to be sensitive to the issues that are faced by women and um, underrepresented groups, and particularly women of color who are in the double bond. Okay, I guess we'll end the session there. Uh, and uh, we'll, I guess, have a, maybe a one or two minute break before we move into the, uh, the next session. Thanks. Thank our, our panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.